This is the CRO Gumbo Podcast by Christian Louvier. Jason Reichel, welcome to the CRO Gumbo Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well, man. It's a couple couple of weeks before Christmas and the quarter's ending, so I know you guys are probably busy over in your world at Nimbly. Yeah, a little bit. Hey, Christian, have you ever said mm-hmm. when someone says, how are you back? Have you ever said not great on the <laughs> podcast? Uh, let's see. Has no. Has ever happened? Okay. No. All right. Are you shitty today? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've spent a week uh, orientating myself with new employees that go nimbly and uh, doing a lot of after hours things. So I'm feeling a little shitty this morning, but it's it's okay. Got it. So you're doing the whole uh, let's grow together as a culture and it's taking its toll at the end of the week? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The culture is taking its toll. Got it. And you told me before we started that you're actually uh, in sh- at your Chicago office. So how many offices... Uh, well, first of all, what, wh- who are you? What do you do? And then how many offices do you have? Sure. Um, my name is Jason Reichel. Uh, I'm the CEO of GoNimbly. Um, GoNimbly is a revenue operations consultancy and technology company uh, focused on helping SaaS companies operate their revenue teams. So we do everything from strategy, tools, enablement um, around SaaS companies, working primarily with sales, marketing, and customer success. Got it. And, and we have so, three offices. Mm-hmm. I, I almost forgot that we have three offices, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York. We're hiring aggressively right now. So if you live in one of those cities and uh, link, follow me on LinkedIn and reach out. And as a CEO of the company, how many of those offices are you having to hit each week? Um, I, I try each week, uh, uh, one, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm trying to get out, I'm trying to get out to each of the offices for a week, a month. Um, and spend time there. I'm based in San Francisco, so that one's a little bit easier uh, to make okay. work. Got it. And is, is um, San Francisco, is that where you were born or you moved there one day? Um, just moved there one day. Uh, no, I, uh, I'm born uh, West Coast, Seattle, went to school in Austin um, and ended up in uh, San Francisco working in, in the tech space. So, you know, pretty, pretty standard story to get there, actually. Cool. How, what made you go to UT Austin? Um. I just, uh, I, I really liked, uh, Austin, Texas. I, I play music. Um, uh, I, and I do comedy. And I really like the art scene there. And I just really kind of fell in love with the area. Um, and you know, the live music scene there is really fantastic. So that was something I wanted to do in my twenties. What, um, you said you do, you do up comedy. I do. Yes. And you still, you still do it. I, I do. I do stand-up comedy. I do improv. I do lots of things like that. I think uh, one of the things that has made me very successful in business is my ability to uh, maneuver pretty well in between conversations, in between making personal connections and, and, and building trust with people through business, right? Um, and I find that those those things like making music and doing art are very critical to that connection. Totally agree with what you're saying. I would say that comedians are uh, up there with uh, my top people that I look up to. I'm absolutely amazed at their ability to get up in front of uh, a bunch of people and speak looking for a laugh. Um, it's definitely one of the hardest things to do, I think. Well, uh, uh, yes, it, it is difficult, uh, but like, don't sell yourself short. Doing a podcast is also very difficult. So I think, I, I think, I think people can look up to you too. Thanks. Um, who's your favorite? Do you have a favorite uh, comedian that you look up to? Uh, I do. I, um, I like, uh, I like people like, uh, I like David Cross a lot. I like, uh, I like a lot of, uh, sort of, you know, I'm a millennial, uh, I guess by generational, but I really looked up to a lot of generation X sort of comedians. Like I kind of, um, gravitate towards more of having a, a pessimistic view on the world, uh, <laughs> in, 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 in a way that I want to make it better though. So that's the millennial in me coming out. Gotcha. So you like the comedians when they didn't have to apologize for what they were saying after they said it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good that we're all way more, uh, aware, but I also think that there is the comedian's job is to tell the truth. Got it. I think that's an important part of it. So I have to ask one of the questions that I talked to most of the CROs is it's almost like, uh, obviously you're CEO, but you work with a lot of CROs and very, um, few have a very traditional path towards that job. Yep. Uh, and you're no exception to that rule. Yep. Um, how did you get it to where you like, maybe not, I mean, as CEO, you're always in sales, but 
um, we were working directly with sales and marketing people. How did that come about being that you're more on the um, art side or client services side of the world? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I worked, I had, I, I always have been someone who likes, I love being in a band, right? I love, I love making things with other people. I'm a big believer in building things and adding value. Um, and so early in my career, uh, every company I worked at, there was always these gaps and they usually fell into uh, areas like how does sales and marketing work or how do these, how do these connections between these different teams work? And I, I just really became fascinated. So I worked at a special effects uh, studio in Austin, Texas, and they did big Hollywood movies. But when they weren't doing big Hollywood movies, they did educational videos. Hmm. And when they did the educational videos, the team was really bad about managing the sales and the project management aspect of that. So even though I managed the special effects team, I sort of started saying, okay, there must be a way to sort of figure out this and make it more like operationally sound, right? Um, and so I started working with Salesforce. Um, I ended up working, you know, with the Salesforce platform and I ended up working at Rackspace in San Antonio for mm. a couple of years. Um, and Salesforce was one of my customers there. So I kind of kept just falling in line with sort of as Salesforce grew as an organization, so did my career and technology in a weird way. Um, and I kept finding that I was working alongside sort of Salesforce and I ended up going to a consulting company, um, that ended up being purchased by IBM called Blue Wolf. And there I really sort of got really into, you know, doing a digital transformation, uh, you know, implementing CRM, implementing sales process, all of this kind of stuff, because it seemed like the teams needed it, right? The value was pretty obvious as soon as, you know, you implemented those things. And, you know, as time went on and that those kinds of work became more commoditized, uh, I, you know, was in Silicon Valley. I decided I was going to go and work in product because I, I, I'm, I'm very passionate about great products. Um, and when I was there, you know, I was a head of product at two organizations and it was really great job. And I, I love making product every day, but the sales and marketing and customer success team, I, I kept seeing in all the organizations I worked at could be more aligned, could be, could operationalize themselves better and so after working in product for a few years, I was like, maybe I can teach SaaS companies how to actually be operators. Like these people that work in sales operations and marketing automation, uh, marketing operations, they're very intelligent. They want to mm-hmm. do good work, um, but there must, there must be a better way to do this, right? And I had a lot of experience in working with different businesses. And so I just saw that, saw that very clearly that in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of people who can build great products. There's not a lot of people who can build great companies. Um, especially on the revenue side, a lot of great SaaS companies are really being great because of the product. But I, I, I think that, you know, there's a huge area for us to really improve our revenue processes. You know, the way that a SaaS company goes, goes to market as they mature is going to have to be very different than it is today. Um, customers are getting, you know, are demanding more and more out of SaaS businesses. You know, you know SaaS is now becoming the default when you buy software, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, there's no value differentiator in that anymore. And, and I think customer experience, well, I know from all the, all of the research I've been doing that customer experience uh, and personalizing that customer experience is, is the difference between a, you know, rapidly growing SaaS company and one that is just doing okay. Jason, so it's a great point. And I didn't, this might be a little bit of a deep question for this interview, yeah. but how, cause you know, I've, I've been around, ironically, I end up moving to Atlanta, I end up working for all SaaS based, uh, Silicon Valley based companies that are SaaS, except for one. Um, they're all out of the Valley. I end up working on the East coast for those companies. So I guess I haven't been as in it as you have, but I've been close to it where SaaS is becoming table stakes and customer experience is the only differentiator. Do you feel like the the VC funding and all of those sorts of things is is reflective of that? I feel like there's still the the metrics that they're valuing these companies that still seems to be ten years behind. Some, I mean, as some of the ones that we know. I mean, some of the ones that we, you know, I'm not going to name names because we do have very deep relationships with lots of VCs. But there, you know, the companies that came out with you know ways to evaluate SaaS companies ten years ago are now the norm. But there are very many uh, funds that are starting today where they're saying things like, hey, we're not going to give one company $100 million. We're going to give 10 companies $10 million. We're going to diversify that. 
We're going to make a value out of our business operations. We're going to make people learn how to operate businesses successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a turning of tides, especially when people realize that unicorn companies are great, but there is so much money to be made um, and value to be added from companies that are, you know, growing 80% year over year, you know, not 300% year over year. Right. Um, and maybe some of those companies could grow 300% year over year if they were more operationally uh, sound organizations, right? And and that's kind of what we found by doing revenue operations and consulting with organizations and, and helping them align, which is um, looking at your operations team. And I'm not talking about business operations, but just the revenue operations part of your business, um, looking at it holistically and tackling problems in a, a holistic way increases your revenue off each customer. So it increases the customer experience, your customers, your customers pay more, and ultimately you can grow faster. Despite popular belief, you don't grow faster by hiring 30 BDRs mm-hmm. and having no training program. Like that is not how that, that is not how you grow faster as a SaaS organization. In fact, that will slow everything down. You mm-hmm. may increase your revenue, but your revenue per person will decrease. Right. And so, you know, there are these kind of hacks that people have put in place. And I think that they were maybe meant to be um, band-aids and people started treating them like they were bridges and they're not. And you can't put a lot of weight onto them. Do you, do, you so, have a, do you have a specific example you could point to a hack that you mentioned? I mean, I think that the hack is we need to, you know, hit, we need to hit uh, end of uh, end of year goals. Let's discount everything. Got it. Okay. Right. Because um, that's, yeah, that's going to get people in the door, but the real question should be, why didn't they sign in the first place? Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't sign in the first place because they felt all the bumps. They, they are now feeling like you ignored them probably for the entire quarter. And now you're coming to them at the end of the quarter with a deal. And is that really the way that you're going to have a long-term partnership? And, and, you know, if you really look at metrics and people can pull this, if you pull your segments from the end of quarters, they churn at a much higher rate than customers who sure. sign in the beginning of quarters. Mm-hmm. So is it more important to protect your churn or more important to hit your number? Right. And so I, I and, and I, so I think that there's some sort of misaligned, uh, misaligned expectations in organizations. And that's just one example within one team, not even talking about all the cross-functional issues that organizations have. Yeah. And, and Jason, one of the things, one of the reasons I first, uh, reasons I first reached out to you is because uh, in multiple places that I listened to a podcast with you or read something that you'd written, or even your LinkedIn profile, you talked consistently about breaking down silos. Uh, and I feel like, you know, people have, talked about that in theory for a while, but it seems to be the actual focus of what you're doing. Is that fair statement? Yeah, that's, that's our whole goal. Our whole goal is to unify the operations team, have one revenue team, have your frontline, you know, people who we call actors being sales, marketing, customer success, talking directly to the customer and have your operators being the directors behind the scenes that are making sure that experience is really good. Right. Um, and that is not a theory Go nimbly, you know, is growing by 100% year over year because we actually deliver that to our customers. Um, and so it's not a thing that's a nice to have, it's a thing that's possible. And it's actually much, much, much more possible and simple than people like to think it is. You know, every startup has a story of when they were 10 people, 150 people, or whatever, everybody was kind of like banging on all cylinders. And yeah, people didn't know what they were doing, but everyone was com- committed to the mission. And then they get this money. And the first thing they do is specialize. The second thing they do is give people vanity metrics. The third thing they do is put a bunch of management in place. The fourth thing they do is start to make enemies amongst their own team. And people forget that they're not competing against one another. Um, And that is what organizations do when you grow rapidly without a plan. So when you break down those silos um, or you're trying to break down those silos, uh, are you typically going after customers that, already have them built up or are recently funding and, and you're going to kind of getting involved at the, the grassroots level? No, we, we work primarily with organizations that are probably series C to IPO. So, so they already have a lot of that structure in place. Like, you know, so our model, what we actually do is we come in and augment your team. So we'll come in and do a skill gap analysis of your operations team. Uh, we'll find out where you have weaknesses. We'll build a team. We have what we call impact teams full of revenue operation uh, specialists. Uh, we've built technology that helps us, you know, understand where your, those gaps are. Um, and then we'll augment and, and actually become part of your team, for lack of a better word, 
um, of your operations team and help you drive that. So we actually work with, you know, very large enterprise SaaS companies as part of their team uh, being revenue operation consultants, right? And the hope is that we're, that we are teaching them how to become more holistic operators. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, you know, in reality, we're, we're really helping them drive their business. And, and, and the way that our programs work is, is a subscription-based consultancy. So it's just like a SaaS product. They pay a specific amount every month and, and they work with our team, right? And so we're very aligned even in the way that we service our customers to what they do. And I, I think that's a kind of a key thing. So we have a lot of the same problems they have. We have to worry about churn. We have to worry about a lot of things. But what we don't have to worry about that other consultant t- consulting teams have to worry about is, are we delivering against this SOW? Um, we don't make short-term fixes so that we can you know, get, the, um, get the SOW extension, right? We mm-hmm. are like partnered with these companies at a very deep fundamental level. And that allows us a, a great deal of trust to help you know, uh, transform them. So when you're when you're doing that model, how does the client understand, um, I guess, what they're supposed, what their expectations are of you, right? Like, so I understand what you're saying about a monthly model, um, but how do they know what you're supposed to be delivering that that day, week, month, etc.? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a question that is not uncommon to get, and there is an answer in what we do. But I always like to first say, how do you know your current operations team is being successful? Mm-hmm. And they'll usually say, we have no idea, but you're a consultant. <laughs> you're automatically um, been. And so um, what, what we do is we have a method called 3VC, which is a, a way that we pull out your analytics, um, your pipeline from Salesforce. We measure that against our existing customers in the industry. We find the gaps that you have in your process and we build you an operational roadmap. I've really taken uh, with the team what I learned in product management and applied it to operations, right? So the same way that a product manager builds a world-class product, we use those same methodologies to build a world-class operations team. Um, And that gives a clear view for customers of what we're committing to. And the way that our programs work is it's by essentially how many FTEs um, equivalents um, that you might have working. So if you're Twilio and you you have a 100-person operational team, you're going to have more than 160 hours a month with us. If you're a small company like Lattice, you might only have one FTE with us, right? And it just depends on on where you are in your journey. So I like to use the word inflection point. So we look at you and go, okay, your next business goal is to IPO. This is what's going to be required to get you there. Let's build a program that makes sense at that level. So we kind of grow with our organizations as, as they become uh, a larger and larger SaaS company. And so Jason, this might be, this is more on the personal drive driver side. Um, of the world. But so I have a note here that you've got, you know, your, a lot of your business comes from referrals. And uh, you told me that, you know, you're, you're growing tremendously hundred percent last year. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you skill what you started and pull yourself out of the process so you can continue to grow? Um, I think the very first thing I did is I have a background in consulting. I have very strong leadership team. Um, who know the consulting space and know the technology space. They all have either worked at SaaS companies or consulted with SaaS companies for a long period of time. I didn't build, when I started the Go Nimbly that works with SaaS organizations, um, I never got myself in the, into the work. Um, the goal of Go Nimbly is to... What do you mean by that? Uh, most people start consulting firms and they start off with, I'm, I'm really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, I can charge X amount of dollars for my time. Um, and now I want to scale that. Oh no, I can't scale that. Um, and that was a problem. I I I managed a very large consulting team. Um, and I saw that firsthand at my, in my past. Right. And so when I, when we created go nimbly, uh, me and Troy Conker, who is my original co-founder, and now we have other founders that we brought on. Um, we, I was very clear that this was going to be a product company that people on the outside might see it as a consulting company. Mm-hmm. but that it is not a consulting company. We are not consultants. We are building product. And the way that we're, we are getting um, all the research for what operationally works for SaaS companies is by, by being a research department, by going in and working with these companies and categorizing through mat- metadata all the things they do at different inflection points so that we can actually be controllers of the largest amount of operational data for SaaS companies. So 
the way that we get that data is by in- integrating ourselves into these organizations. And that also happens to pay the bills, but it is not what the company is about, right? And so, so very clearly, I think that if you're going to start a consulting company, you have to decide, are you a consulting company or are you a product company that does consulting? And the biggest, the biggest difference, to be quite honest, is uh, people love consultants um, at organizations. And when they lose a consultant, they often migrate away from the organization. So in your, if you're running a consulting company and if you lost Joe mm-hmm. and suddenly you lose three clients, you are running a consulting company. You better really make Joe happy. And that's what's important. If you work at go nimbly, we have a methodology that everybody follows. And yes, consultants are very important to that process. Customers like their consultants, but the way that we even do work is you don't ever get one consultant. You get a team of consultants and they are essentially running a book of business. And because of that, we can do things like change out resources, um, maneuver around customers to other, uh, to other teams when, when, it's, when it's needed, and we can actually scale the organization. And so that is the, the biggest thing is that we are in a position where we can scale. And that's a very hard thing for a consulting organization to do. Um, and it's allowed us to take advantage of the marketplace heating up with revenue operations right? And it's allowed us to continue to grow the way that we're growing. We're growing like a SaaS company, even yeah, though we are, we are personal, you know, we are personnel based. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, lesson. It's definitely one that I, I learned the hard way um, because I didn't have a consulting background. I just had the sales background. Uh, mm-hmm. And I learned through going through the, those paces that uh, exactly what you just said. So um, very, yeah. very, very important. I, uh, I do think that uh, consulting companies, uh, uh, can become more efficient. They can generate more revenue. You know, I think that one thing that we do is we try to hold ourselves accountable, not to consulting metrics, but to SaaS metrics. Mm-hmm. So we, we try to have like our revenue churn rate in a, in a SaaS company. I mean, I mean, in a consulting company can be up to 60% and that'd be healthy. You know, our revenue churn rate is less than 10%. Right. And so, so it's, it's holding ourselves to a higher standard than other consulting companies, to be honest. And that leads to referrals, which was the, what the question was, right? If we hold ourselves to a higher uh, standard. So an example of this that we did is we used to allow customers to sign quarterly or yearly contracts um, and gave them a discount. Well, when we were very early in our uh, maturation process, I realized that led to consultants not always delivering the way that I wanted them to. If you know you have a contract for a year, like you might let the ball drop once in a while. Got it. You might sandbag it sometimes. Okay. Right. So I transferred all contracts to monthly contracts that put a tremendous amount of pressure on our, on our consulting team. Their lives were not great, but that strengthened the product, that stress test strengthened the product and the team grew by leaps and bounds during that period. Right. And now we're back to where we can sign, you know, quarterly contracts, yearly contracts because the team has sort of developed this muscle. The product has that stress test. Got it. So you revert, reverted back to it. Okay. That's impressive. Um, Jason, one of the things when I was going through your LinkedIn profile, I always look at the person on interviews recommendations. And one of the things that I consistently found on the ones received was that uh, some version of he's a great manager. So where, where does that come from? I mean, that's usually, is it, is that taught? Did you have a great mentor or is just kind of inside you? I have had a series of managers. I'm very, I'm sorry to interrupt real quick for people listening. I just want to get, read one line of one. Um, just because it basically, I don't want people to think that you got like a boiler, boiler plate language. Um, somebody said, hands down the best manager I've ever had. I mean, that's pretty, um, telling and yeah, thank consistent you. Thank with you. what I read. Uh, I, I do care about it a lot. Um, uh, and I do try, <laughs> I, 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 there's a part of my personality that is just a try hard. So I, I, I want to do the job. Well, I, I believe in craft. I believe that being a manager or being a leader, I don't really know if I believe in management, so to speak. People in my organization will say that we are very uh, flat, right? We are a very flat organization. I believe in distributing decisions all the way to the edges of the organization. I believe in keeping people generalist for as long as possible, not letting them specialize. Um, I believe in really being vulnerable. Uh, I just wrote something on LinkedIn uh, because I just did a panel on culture, which was around the idea that like, you need to give people the sandbox to play in and then you need to have them uh, do a retrospective of what they did that week and let them really lead themselves to, to a betterment culture. 
And that's what we have at Go Nimbly. So I think that a lot of times when people say I'm a great manager, what they really mean is that I gave them the space to find themselves, right? And I think that's, I think that's what being a great leader is, is hiring really smart people who want to be challenged to be their best. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means letting them make mistakes. It means letting them fail. Um, but it also means having a set of expectations so they don't feel like they can fail without any consequence. And one of the big things we do is, you know, we have these values and, and, and I, I talk a lot about how to write cultural values that mean something. And then, so that sets the sort of the organizational framework for people. And then what you do is you have a weekly retrospective with the team where they're, where they're self-analyzing and they're coming out with what went well, what are they going to change about their process? And that, that link between those two things make people feel like they're being managed, even though they're really managing themselves. And so when a manager says, well, how can you do this at scale? It's like, you have to learn what, what, what attributes aren't a great manager. And then you need to teach people how to do that for themselves. Um, and, okay. and, and that's really the, and I think that's really why I get those, those kind of accolades from people. And I have very deep relationships with people that I've worked with in my career. So you, there's a lot I want to unpack in there. Um, there's a great answer. One of the first things that buzzed out at me was you said you try to create, make sure that they're generalists, not specialists. And that's right now, or maybe it's always been like a, a hot topic. Yep. Um, what is your thought process around that? Is it either or, or are you just kind of lean one way versus the other? It's, it's either or. Um, okay. I do think that specialists, we went through a period in technology, let's say that, from 1990, maybe, maybe late 80s to maybe 2007, 8 or 9, where technology was not where it needed to be. So you needed very technical specialists, very technical salespeople, very technical everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we are now in a period where technology can actually do a lot of that specialization, AI, machine learning. And these are not, I'm, I'm saying these like they're buzzwords, so please don't hear them as buzzwords. They're, in reality, uh, what people want to point technology at um, is a spe- is specialties. Like the, it's just what it does, right? It's, it's how technology works the best. Mm-hmm. And what people do is they see the 20% or 30% that technology can't see, right? And so if you think that like people are, you know, can do 20% of something, if, you, if you're a specialist in X um, and, and really what your gift is, is to see the 20% that technology can't see, that's only 20% of a job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're a generalist who knows a lot about uh, a lot of areas or, or what, we, what I would call a wide area, like sales operations or marketing operations, right? We, we put a label on that, but that's massive. If you've ever worked in any of those career fields, you could be in sales operations and spend your entire year, uh, year working on forecasting, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a massive field. So I, I think that what, what I've found is that by being a generalist, what you actually know how to do is pivot between what's important, Right. And so at Go Nimbly, what we're, what we're really big about is using a data-driven approach to find out what's important and then using creativity to solve those gaps. So, you know, I'll give you a real-world example of something we do. We take someone's pipeline, look at the conversion. That customer might come to us and say, hey, we have a problem over here. And what we'll do is we'll validate that with data and then we'll generate operational work streams that may hypothesis against that that may change that conversion, right? And in whatever area it is, let's say it's your demo, right? For you, so you have a low conversion from demo mm-hmm. to uh, sign up, And you might be saying that the problem is qualification. Well, we look at your stats and we go, your qualification number is healthy. So it's not actually a qualification issue. It's more of a demo to conversion. Maybe your team doesn't know how to ask for the sale. Let's look at that. Let's, what's work streams that we could do to, to get them there? Mm-hmm. Um, and we make that hypothesis and then we measure it over and over again, but it's marrying that sort of craft with, you know, with the data, the data, right. The, the art with the data. And so that's a big thing of how we think about this stuff. So let, let's take, let's stay on that example for a second. Let's, let's say you hadn't gotten, you hadn't gotten into the client yet. How do you sell value to something that can't be seen. Like there's a lot of people that are, are going to go that you're competing against that are going to tell you, tell your same prospect, well, we're going to make your revenue enablement better, right? By X percent on average. Um, how do you sell something that, you know, people can't see at that high of a level? 
having a solid process for getting there. So having, having the, the steps and process that you can walk someone through, um, really being transparent. So one of the things that people sometimes ask in the sales process is, okay, so what tangible stuff are you going to do? And they want me to say, we're going to dedupe your data inside of your Salesforce org <laughs> so that you can do X, Y. That's what they want to hear. That's what they want to hear, yeah. We will not say that. Okay. Because that's a lie. And the way that you grow a 100% growing business uh, year over year in the space that we're in is by not lying. There's a buzzword right now of account-based sales, account-based marketing. Yeah. Um, that's really kind of always been there. It's just been... Yep packaged lately. Um, and what I, you know, what I tell clients that have never really practiced this is like, it doesn't matter if it's the lowest person on the totem pole or the CXO, basically you're selling to everybody in that account. That's what it is. But to do what you're doing, you have to be able to have a different conversation with that frontline manager than you do the CRO. Kind of. So, so what I found is because we're talking about, (laughs) Because I try to teach people that the North Star metric for, for sales, marketing, and customer success is increase in revenue, mm-hmm. we're sort of saying the language that you want to speak, the language that you want to speak about your forecasting or your pipeline, those are all okay. We, we can talk about that. But really, we need this broader thing to align to. And nobody ever says, no one's ever said in any sales process, everyone's aligned to revenue and there's no alignment issues between our teams. Right. No one's ever said that, that, no, we don't have that. Nobody's ever said that in the history of talking to hundreds and hundreds of organizations. They all go, this is a very real problem. They've always tried to solve it on their own and and they've never been able to. I think about ABM the same way, right? Which is what's account-based. I, we believe in ABM. We, we, we have that process, but it's more because I believe that the, the B2B buyer is the same person who buys B2C uh, product. B2C is all about personalization. You go on your Instagram, you're going to get the stuff you like served up to you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that B2B is not like that. So I like using account-based marketing or, you know, account-based everything. It's so weird what words you (laughs) did. Um, I like to use that as a catalyst of saying, it's it's a Trojan horse for me to come in and say, really what this is about is personalizing to the person you're trying to talk to. Yeah. Why do you think, Mr. Sales Rep, you should be able to close a million dollar, uh, you know, B2B sale of your software without ever knowing your prospect? Why? Those were the honey days, right? Those, those, those were, we were dumb to think that is how this business works. And we were not being ethical. We were not being honest because that's not the way that the business works. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and, you're, and, you, and your consumer, the person who's buying, is always going to be ahead of how the hot dog factory makes the hot dogs, right? And so, so I use ABM as a way of trying to push a message of personalization, personalize everything, personalize down. If, if you don't know your ICP, then that's the problem. Mm-hmm. If you know your ICP, then you should have no problem personalizing, right? And your whole team should be able to do that at scale. And if you can't do that, that's a real problem across your organization. And the whole thing about personalizing that you just said should, that should be a t-shirt or something. Um, (laughs) I like that. That was a nice little clip. Um, So that actually, that segues into one of the points I I had on the sheet for you is uh, like for about a decade. And I used to get a lot of pushback from this on sales leaders and I still do, but what is your view on like personal branding for your ground troops? Cause I mean, I've, like I said, I've maintained for a decade that, you know, people, as soon as they could get access to your social media profiles, it all became about personal brand over the, the brand that you work for. How do you feel about that? I, I think everyone has a personal brand that they can lean on. And I, I and I, yeah, and I hate to use that term. I mean, more yeah, yeah, reputation, yeah. you know? Um, and I guess what, what I'm getting at with that question is, you know, when somebody gets, so there's 7,000 MarTech applications out there right now. So, you know, when somebody is going to, it's, it's, it's buyer's choice. And so when they figure out that they want an email marketing automation software, they have 10 choices. And so I've never been the enterprise buyer, but my assumption is that they're going to go look online for who their sales rep is to see what Absolutely. they know about the product. The thing I will say is, and this is something we talk about in orientation at GoNimbly, we have our, we had a, you know, team-wide camp, you know, earlier this year is fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Right. And, and, you know, the thing I was just saying where 
we were, we were in the hunt, you know, we were in the honey days. We were in like, we were naive and we were getting all these million dollar sales because, you know, so, you know, SaaS software was new and it, it could do all this stuff and it could rapidly be developed because of, you know, agile processes, all of these kind of things that were true and that are not true anymore. People are afraid to try things that they haven't done. Right. And I'm not, I know I'm not being groundbreaking at all, but I think about that specifically around personal branding. Right. I think about that specifically about why are you not putting video content out there? Why are you not writing things? Why you have opinions, you are a person, you, you, you have been doing this for long enough to know what you think is true and not true. Find your people, right? Find, find the buyers who, who believe in that, right? If you, and then if that's big enough or loud enough, you'll have a great career. And if it's not, you'll realize that or you'll be educated, right? And, mm-hmm. and as long as you're out there, just really put like, you know, we could have waited so much longer to figure out how revenue operations was really going to be defined and jump on that bandwagon. And believe me, we had a lot of opportunities very early on to use other people's definitions of revenue operations and the way that they think about it as a way to cattle, you know, uh, push us further in the marketplace, partnering with organizations who I didn't agree with what they thought revenue operations is or what the value was. We had a lot of opportunity to do that. And I decided not to because I wanted to be convicted to what it meant for us as an organization, right? Well, hold, and, hold and on, Jason. I want to I want to interrupt you right there. Yep. Um, what you're talking about doing, it takes a lot of confidence um, to basically tell the we'll just call it the industry standard fu. Um, this is what we really think. Where does that come from? Like the. Is that just something you've always had, which is the convictions of your, the, those convictions that go that deep and then you're able to sell it or do you just kind of see it? And that's where the confidence comes from. Um, two things. I uh, grew up in the subculture of, uh, so I don't have a traditional CEO pedigree. I grew up in, you know, uh, the, the punk rock subculture. I grew mm-hmm. up in, you know, running my own record label, writing my own zines, um, having a very skeptical but optimistic view of what I could control in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lead very, I lead with what I call skeptical optimism, right? Which is if you're the most organized person in the room, if you know what you're talking about, but you're willing to listen, people will be willing to hear you. Okay. Can um, you expand, so, expand on that a little bit? Yeah. I don't think it's confidence because confidence uh, okay. gets associated with alphaness, right? Like this is the, it's the, my way or the highway. It's, it's this okay. or it's that my confidence. And, and, and the way that I look at this is nobody knows the answer to this. So my answer and my company's answer is as valid as any other, any other uh, answer that exists. And even though or a lot of organizations in, in a more, I guess, mature space like ABM will say they all have the answer. They, they, they don't really, right. This, we don't really know how to do this yet. Like, like I said, we were in these honey days where people just bought stuff. Now people are, are, now people are, are not just buying stuff and we're trying to figure out how to make them buy stuff. We still haven't nailed it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the jury is still out. And as long as the jury is still out, then my opinion and my company's opinion, especially when we have the numbers and data that we have is as valid as anyone else's. So it, it isn't confidence. It's doing the hard work. Got it. Great answer. What is your opinion of what's happening with enterprise versus the rest of the market? Um, we like, mostly are, you, are you still seeing the seven figure deals coming in things like that, that you talked about for, for go nimbly for our customers. No more and more businesses becoming velocity based business. Right. Okay. Uh, um, but, but for go nimbly, particularly, you know, every one of our customers is spending at least $250,000 a year with us. Um, And so, you know, that's the reality of, of what the value we bring to organizations. Um, But our, what we consider enterprise would be bringing a million dollars a year to us. Right. And so, you know, that's the difference for us. Um, And so when we're, when we're looking at whales, we're definitely looking at whales. Um, I hate using that word because it makes it seem like they're bloated or that we're taking advantage of them, but I I know Mm -hmm. what you mean. Right. Um, and so for us, it's been more and more SaaS companies are becoming legitimate businesses. Like they're yeah. becoming legitimate enterprises, right? And we happen to sell the SaaS companies. We happen to know this space. And more and more of the Twilio's of the world are becoming the next American Expresses of the world. And that's just the reality huh. of it. And so uh, as, 
as much as I love working with cool SaaS companies, um, there's more and more SaaS companies that are just becoming enterprise. And so we've had to shift the way we sell because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I do find that in the SaaS space, the enterprise people are still willing to make bets on innovation. They're still willing to make bets on what could make their organization better. When organizations hit IPO, that sort of changes a little bit. Um, But I think as more and more SaaS companies actually IPO, I think that maybe that will have some impact on what it means to be an IPO company, right? Um, What it means to markets, what it means to enterprise, what it means to your buyer personality, all of these things. When we talk about the verticals that our customers service, yeah, enterprise is still very much about building deep relationships. Mm-hmm. I think bringing something in like ABM on enterprise allows more people to play in that play box, you know, that sandbox, sorry, the sandbox that was traditionally left for an, an enterprise AE to be uh, managing. And the one thing that I can tell you by looking at data is that enterprises, enterprise AEs behave vastly different from one another. And the organizations that the enterprise AE, AEs um, actually act more in sync, they have higher growth numbers, right? So there is something about sort of, I hate using this word because enterprise AEs don't believe me or, or they don't like hearing this. There is something about streamlining and operationalizing even enterprise sales that leads to higher, to higher growth for the business, maybe not as big a commissions for enterprise AEs. Hmm. It's interesting you say that. And I, I, the reason I say that is because I feel like everything I hear about sales training or oper- operations right now is so geared around the SDR that oh, yeah. I feel like there's a huge gap between like, I, I never had any that I can think of, so to speak, like named um, sales training at the yeah. enterprise level. And it wasn't because I didn't want it. It's just, it wasn't there. And I still don't know if it's there. I mean, there's training out there like, I don't know, closing or negotiating techniques, but yes. that doesn't really help you with or help me when the, a sales cycle that's going to be six to 18 to possibly 36 months. Yeah. Like it's very different than the less than three month sales cycle. No, totally SDR agree. With you. I, I think there's yeah. way, way, way too much focus on SDRs because it's actually easier to train them because the job is more, the job is more consistent. Mm-hmm. The experience is more consistent. You know, if you are an a enterprise AE and you're servicing telecoms versus servicing fintech, the experience is going to be vastly different. One of the selling uh, books that I really love is this book called Triangle Selling, which is a great book. Um, and it's because it's a framework that enterprise sales reps are actually missing. Um, and so I've seen firsthand, even at hiring people at Go Nimble, you can hire an enterprise sales rep who has been uh, very good in one vertical bring them to another vertical and they seem to fall down. Um, Hmm. And that tells me that there's a lack of fundamental core strength Mm -hmm. and a lot of enterprise AEs. Um, And it is, it is something that I hate being uh, again, a skeptic, right? Uh, (laughs) Optimistically. It is something that I think that is going to hit us very hard. It it is something that's going to hit us very hard. Um, It's going to hit everyone very hard. And I think that when, you know, when times are fat, people all eat. And then when times are lean, the people who have a really core strength and, and a core background just do well. Right. And, and they, they withstand, they withstand that downturn. Um, and so, you know, I'm hoping that more and more, you know, enterprise A's like you are going, shit, I would have liked to be trained in some methodologies that are really core to what I do. Yeah. I would, I would like to stop saying that it's all based on the relationship. Because, uh, yeah, that's true. But what makes up a good relationship? Can you break that down? Can you tell me uh, models that actually that you can actually measure that? Or am I supposed to just trust you? And trust is important. But more important than trust is when someone doesn't trust you, you can explain why they should. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were so many times I got called about from from companies that were like, oh, well, you've got relationships with you know, these six big enterprise companies. So we're just going to hire you for that. And that's literally, I mean, it's nice, but it's definitely only like, I don't know, 25% part of the problem. If you want to <laughs> actually make the sales, like I, yeah. you know, I can build a pipeline of $10 million and probably, well, I have done it in like 10 weeks. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you don't have all the other pieces in place, then it, it doesn't matter what relationships. I yeah. Have. That, 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 that's like 40 years ago. 
Yeah. Yeah. You're totally hitting the nail on the head. And like as CEO of a company, I understand why that's so enticing. But, you know, one of our core values is value the long term over the short term. We're paying, we're playing a long term game here. Right. We're trying mm-hmm. to build a world class company that's going to be around for decades. And I think that the way that, you know, what you just mentioned is a big problem that we have that generates some revenue so that you can hit a quarter. But it puts the business in a dangerous position and puts your career in a dangerous position because ultimately if i was cro of that company i would go oh we have no sales enablement so the only thing we can go do is buy buy pipeline yeah i know exactly um all right well jason i'm i'm gonna have to have you back on because thank you man (laughs) uh, that 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 part right there needs to be a separate episode um so this last part real quick i call a quick hit q a Uh, i'm gonna pick out about five to seven questions and uh just give me the quick answers that you have. Okay. Um, what's something that annoys you? Um, when someone says that's too theoretical, uh, you know, like the part of the episode when you were like going into it and go, okay, what is it really? And I go, no, that's what it is really. Like we're really selling transformation to people. We're really selling a process to people. It's not theoretical. It's just longer than I can. It, it takes more focus than 30 seconds. Right. I really hate that. Um, I'm fine when people go, sorry, my, my computer's going crazy. Oh, um, I, I am fine when people go, I don't understand something or can you dive deeper into this? The answer is yes. Right. Um, but I'm very annoyed by just the idea that hard things should be easy to understand and they're not. Got so, it. Um, so that that's annoying. I think. Who's a, who's a, who's a mentor that you have that may or may not know it. So it could be somebody famous. Um, yeah, I, I admire, uh, I mostly admire, uh, other like, uh, musicians. So I really admire like, um, Devo, uh, who's a band because they mm-hmm. marry art and like a real statement together. Uh, I admire, uh, Penn and Teller who are magicians. <laughs> um, I admire sort of these outliers within a field where it doesn't, where it doesn't always work to be an outlier. And there's tons of outliers who never make it big. Right. I admire, you know, Daniel Johnson, who is a, a, a artist who passed away that most people don't know about. Right. Um, but ultimately, what kind, of, what kind I, of art did he do and why did you like him so much? Uh, he was a musician. Uh, he was a huge influence. He doesn't sound like, but he was a huge influence on people like Kurt Cobain from Nirvana and other people mm. who were really big fans of his who like would tell everyone this guy's amazing, but he had mental illness. And so he couldn't participate in, you know, in the structure of the music industry. Gotcha. Um, But he was a genius and it's very inspiring to see sometimes how uh, genius can show through industry. Got it. Um, Jason, what's a blind spot that you had in your twenties that you clearly see now? Um assuming that everybody (laughs) wanted to be the best they could be um, without the consequence that sometimes that wears you out. Right. So I, Mm. I am very much into trying to be better every day. I spend an hour every day trying to improve my skills and something. Um, And I am so, I believe in it so much that I don't, I'm not always as kind as I should be to others who don't share that, that, belief okay um what's your favorite mobile app um uh dude uh, let's see probably just <laughs> like a music app or something uh linkedin i linked I, I love that linkedin has become a real social network um that i can spend time on and nobody seems to be annoyed about it um i waste so much time on it i know that yep. we're not supposed to say that but i waste so much time on it just reading about what people are doing um and now because I'm old, uh, I care about everything you're talking about on there. So it, it, it's- I've been on it since like 2004. And I'm wondering like what the hell I was doing wrong the whole time that all of a sudden it became popular. I'm trying uh, yeah. to uh, yeah. understand that. Um, if you had to get pumped up uh, for something, what would, that, what would that song be to get you amped up? Um, I, I uh, played uh, sports. I played baseball. And I would listen to Montel Jordan a lot. I, I would listen to 
I remember I'd be just, this is how we do it, where every time I went up to the baseball bat, it was like a, it was like that was your, a that was your batter up song, was uh, Montel Jordan, that's awesome. Yeah, this is how uh, we do it, and then I'd be like, a strikeout, and I'd be like, that's how I did it, you know. It <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so who's your favorite baseball team? Uh, my favorite baseball team is I grew up in Seattle, so I'm going to say Seattle Mariners. I like like the 90s Mariners with Griffey and all those people were just amazing. Um, anyone listening to this is going to know that I, I'm talking about ball sports, which is not my strength, um, but, but I do love baseball. I love mm-hmm. how slow it is, and I love how, how it makes everyone mad that it won't change in a real way. <laughs> it's it's so great. Yeah, you really have to know the game to appreciate this with the speed that things happen yeah. today. But man, you grew up in a good time of Seattle yeah. Mariner sports. Yeah, Edgar and Ken Griffey, and exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess you got. I guess you got to see a little bit of Suzuki too when he was there. Um, let's see what yes. um, what profession uh, would you absolutely not like to do? All right. So my favorite saying is, "Guys, it's okay to make mistakes. We're not saving lives." So I think if I had a profession where I saved lives, that that like hired thing I <laughs> say SOL on that one. wouldn't work. So I would hate <laughs> to be a doctor. I would hate to be some, cause if I walked in as a doctor and said, guys, we're trying to save people's lives here, but we can still make mistakes. Um, <laughs> I don't feel like that would go over as well. Gotcha. And last question, uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God a lot or Tom Cruise say when you arrive at the pearly gates? So I don't care what they say, but I hope it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> and I, I hope that he just goes on and on about how great I am. And I can just go, shh, just shut up. You had me a hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good answer. That's the best one I've gotten so far. Good. Um, <laughs> Jason, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. The best way is Jason at go nimbly. Uh, please don't spam me. Um, and uh, LinkedIn. Um, just go to LinkedIn and follow me and, and start dialogues. I answer every message on LinkedIn, even every annoying sales thing that someone reaches out to me um, because I want you to know that I'm a person and, and that uh, maybe some of the tactics you're using doesn't make me feel like a person. So if you just reach out to me with a blank thing, I'm not going to be an asshole to you because I don't believe in that, but I'll tell you how that made me feel. Got it. And for everybody out there, I'll have the link on there. But if uh, you want to do it now, his link is better. Jason is the handle on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, well, Jason Reichel, thanks so much for coming on the CRO Gumbo podcast. Yeah. And I'd love to do it again. Thank you so much, Christian.